Hello, everyone, and welcome to Asian Pacific Voices Radio, where you'll find stimulating conversations that explore diverse topics and stories impacting our Asian communities. I'm your host, Rasha Goel. My guest today is a remarkable storyteller and creative activist whose work resonates deeply across cultures and communities. He's one of the first South Asians to appear as a stand-up comedian on national television, including Comedy Central, BET, MTV, PBS, and his groundbreaking one-person multi-character play, Dishwasher Dreams, now running, has captured the hot hearts of audiences worldwide, where he's been able to shed light on the immigrant experience with humor and profound narrative depth. It is my pleasure to welcome Alauddin Ullah to Asian Pacific Voices Radio. How are you? Thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Greetings from San Diego. It's great to be here. Ah, I love it. Love it. Well, our hub is San Diego. Um, you know, you have such a fascinating background. There's so much to talk to you about. So I'm just going to start off uh, you were born in New York, and your father was one of the first Bengali Muslim men in Harlem in the 1930s. So talk to me a little bit about your upbringing. What was it like growing up in New York? And do you have any particular memories? Because I understand it was a bit of a conflicting time for you as well. Yeah, well, I, I grew up in the uh, the 70s, and um, it was, uh, you know, I joke about I come from the only uh, Bangladeshi Muslim family in Spanish Harlem. It's like being the only Amish guy at a rap concert. So, so for me, growing up in the 70s in New York, it was a really tough time because New York was going through just a lot of, you know, drama. And, and where we lived in East Harlem, it was a really rough neighborhood. So to be Muslim Bangladeshi, I felt like a freak growing up. And my father had come to America years ago when he was younger, when he was a teenager, on those steamships shoveling coal. So I think when, you know, he was raising children in you know, New York, <clears throat> he wasn't really aware of just the culture clash. Like we were brought up in the, in the, in the neighborhood, which was hip hop was really rising. I was really at the birth of hip hop. So I was very much into a New York culture of hip hop. I was into the Knicks and the Yankees and my parents were very, they were devout Muslims. So there was always that culture clash of uh, both. And also at the same time too, you know, Bangladesh was going through its independence. So you had my parents who were like staunch supporters of independence. They were, you know, involved in that and they were, you know, very Bangladeshi. For lack of a better word, they were fobs. And, you know, my brother and I, we were so New York and, and Americanized. There was that culture clash that was constantly going on. So, you know, it was a unique childhood in that in my living room, there were images of Mecca and Islamic pictures and there would be prayer mats. And then in my bedroom, there would be, you know, pictures of like Reggie Jackson, the Knicks and like Run DMC. So it was literally two worlds in one household, which was a unique childhood growing up. That's so beautiful. But I feel like it is conflicting because we are trying to figure out our identity as South Asian Americans, right? When we grow up between these two communities. I know I felt that. Um, I'm sure, and, and, and let me know if I'm different here, but like families are so important in our Asian American communities and um, they play a really crucial role, especially in the immigrant experience. So was there a humorous family anecdote that had a significant impact on your understanding of the cultural identity? And then how do you, how did that influence your artistic expression? Because I've seen some of your work and how you're able to kind of bring that in your stand-up comedy. Yeah, well, you know, growing up, like, I wasn't 
you know, it's ironic. I was very rebellious. So I wasn't really like a devout. I didn't want to be a devout Muslim. I was just into like sports and, you know, hip hop. So any opportunity I could use Islam to, you know, kind of get my parents to get what I wanted, I would use it. So, you know, I don't know if you recall Run DMC. They, you know, had a song called My Adidas. It was the, it was the shell top Adidas that they were wearing. So what people don't know is that though, that brand of sneaker was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's. And my mom was, ne my mom was never going to get me anything expensive. You know, we were like a pay less, you know, household. So I told my mom, I said, Ma, can I have, you know, um, the, you know, shell top Adidas? And she was telling me, you know, in Bangladesh, we don't want nothing on our feet. Well, you should be happy that, you know, you have a roof over your head and we're feeding you. And then I was like, Ma, but can I get these Kareem Abdul-Jabbar's? And she was like, well, is, is he a Muslim? And like at that moment, it's, you know, it came to epiphany like, yeah, Ma, he is a Muslim. Can, can I please get them? These are Muslim sneakers. So... You playing your cards right there. <laughs> well, it was like, you know, I really wanted those sneakers because, you know, it was, it was, you know, run DMC. And that was when they had the fat shoelaces that was, you know, the same color stripe as the, the sneaker. So it was like, for me, I felt like I had to kind of persuade my mom to let me be a part of the culture by, uh, you know, sort of encouraging her that if a Muslim wears this, then, you know, and, and in sports, other than Muhammad Ali, you couldn't get as big as Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So it was interesting that my my mom especially got into some of the culture because of, you know, um, there, there there is ways that the parents at first may not approve of what you're doing. My mom never wanted me to be a comedian. But I think as, you know, you share your passion, and you have to sort of find your own voice that they come around. Because, you know, every, every South Asian mom and dad wants you to be a doctor or engineer. But if you follow your passion, we're the first generation. It's like they don't know of any artists. They don't know of any comedians. So I felt like I was a trailblazer in the 90s because I, I couldn't tell my mom, oh, yeah, well, there's another comedian. Because at the time, there wasn't. There was Russell, Russell Peters in Canada and me in America. So we weren't, we weren't, it wasn't like the norm. So, you know, culturally, um, growing up, I did feel like a freak because I got bullied a lot. But what happened is my friends became like the graffiti artists and those guys who were like into hip hop. So you got to keep in mind, too, that in the 70s, hip hop wasn't popular. It was sort of underground. So the guys that I grew up with were like MCs, um, graffiti artists. And like in my neighborhood, we had some excellent graffiti artists. So like my mom didn't even know what graffiti was. So trying to explain to my mother, she would look agree. What is this signature? What, what is this? I couldn't even explain to her the concept of graffiti. And then like with rapping, she was like, why are they talking so fast? What are they, what are they saying? So me trying to share hip hop with my mom just wasn't, you know, the norm. And here you are like, you know, 30 years later. We've got Anik Khan, one of the biggest rappers, who's Bangladeshi. In the 90s, there just wasn't, you know, other than maybe Apache Indian from London, there, was, there wasn't any South Asian rapper. It was brand new. Now you got like MIA and Anik Khan. So it's interesting for me to kind of sit and watch these waves of South Asian uh, arts kind of go through these different waves of like no one to now being part of the pop culture. And especially, I'm sure, seeing the growth even with, within just the stand-up comedy realm, too, right? 
from where you were and, and the limited opportunities for South Asians and now where we are today. Um, that brings me to your one-man show, Dishwasher Dreams, which is deeply autobiographical and it places a special focus on your relationship with your father, which I thought, which I found to be very um, heartfelt. And so talk to me a little bit about what inspired you to create this show and how were you able to navigate the vulnerability that comes with sharing your personal experiences? Well, I had kind of hit a wall. Um, you know, when I was in my early 20s, I was just booking a lot of work as a fob. The thing is, I didn't, to be honest, I felt like I didn't have a connection to my father. He was from a village in Bangladesh, Kali. I mean, it was like way out, you know, 100 miles from like even the city of Dhaka. So my father was, you know, coming from a village where, you know, just poverty was just the norm. So to think that he came to America and was a dishwasher and wanted to be a restaurant owner, I never put two and two together and like, wow, that's an amazing, amazing feat. So when I was just, you know, a comedian, you make that jump from comedy to TV and film. The only roles that I was being offered was for the fob, where I have to do it with an accent. And here I am, a quintessential New Yorker. I never got to play like just a New Yorker. So I was just getting really frustrated. And American Daisy, um, the film that I was in like 20 years ago, that was the first time I got to play like a professor or assistant or associate professor. Like I never got to play an academic. I never got to play a doctor. And I know my manager says, don't use the R word, but I'm going to say it. In the 90s, it was really racist. And so it's kind of like that scene out of Hollywood Shuffle where white people are telling you to do it more. Can you do it more with an accent? Can you do it like you're straight out of the village? And I'm not making it up. That's how casting directors would talk to me. It'd be these white casting directors saying, can you make it more with an accent? And I was like, well, how much more do you want it? And so here I am, a New Yorker, looking at it from the point of view, like, you know, it's very disrespectful and stereotypical. So I remember a well-known director, I told him, you know, this is not the way Muslims should be portrayed. We're more than terrorists. And he says, well, maybe you should write the story. And we got into an argument. And I was like, do you know any Muslims? Because most of the Muslims that I roll with in New York, they don't talk like this. You know, a lot, of, I know, I told them, I know a lot of Muslims that listen to hip hop. I know a lot of Muslims that party, go to dance clubs. Like you have one monolith image of Muslims. So here I am, the person least likely to be defending Muslims, arguing in the room. And, you know, I had, you know, agents and casters was like, you should be grateful that you're even in the room. And I just thought it was such an arrogant, privileged thing to tell me. So, you know, I didn't have that power team behind me. So I, a lot of times was arguing in these, in these, um, in, in these auditions. So I just kind of had a breaking point where I said, you know what? I don't want to play a terrorist. Most Muslims who come to this country don't come here to start terrorist groups. Most Muslims who come to America just want to have a job. And all of these stupid films you're making about, you know, the princes of these kings who re rebel against their dad, they were following the Osama bin Laden trope. You know, the guy who goes against his father and starts a terrorist group. I was like, y'all don't know any Muslims because most Muslims come to New York. Back in the day, they were dishwashers. They worked their way up to be chefs. And then they became restaurant owners. 
That is the story of Indian restaurants. And they were like, yeah, 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 just, just, read, the, just read the damn you know, lines. So I felt like they were never going to listen to me. I had to come back to New York and figure out how can I tell this story? And I remember Paul Mooney, who was Richard Pryor's writer, my favorite comedian, he said, you need to go back to New York and just tell the story of your parents. Like, that's, that's your magic right there. And I was like, yeah, but I got to write new material and I got to write jokes. He's like, no, just tell the story of your parents. I was like, yeah, Paul, you're crazy. So when I came to New York, um, Gita City Girl, who ran Salam Theater, she gave she gave me free tickets to the public theater. And, you know, I never say no to free. So, <laughs> twice. So I saw Lookawana Blues. And um, it was like 15 years ago at the public theater. And it was so moving because it was about a young boy whose mother runs out on him. He doesn't really know his father. And he's raised by this older black woman in a boarding home. And he finds himself in this place where people get second chances. But he was playing, he was doing this, the, the entire play to a guitarist. And I just knew right there, I want to do a show where I'm doing monologues with a tabla player. I thought it was crazy. No one in American theater even knows what a tabla is. These white, white people have no clue what you know, Indian music is. So it was a radical idea. So Ruben Santiago Hudson, was sort of like the inspiration for me to do this solo show. And it's a show, it's a parallel story about me in Hollywood getting ready to audition for the biggest role of my life, this studio film where I'm playing a terrorist. And I'm thinking about how my dad came to America and all the stories he told me, which I used to ignore, about how he survived in, in New York and how he survived in America. How did you know, here I am, and I thought it was ironic. Here I am in Hollywood, a New York, a foreigner. I don't drive. I don't know this culture. L.A. is a completely different world from New York. And I was so, like, sad. Like, I don't belong here. I don't want to do these terrorist parts. I'm a comedian. Why, am I, why can't I be, like, the best friend? Why can't I be, like, the, you know, sort of, like, you know, the, the lead? Why am I always playing the cab driver and terrorist? with no nuance. So I knew I had to go back to New York and find out who my parents were. And so my dad had passed, but some of his friends were still alive. They were very old. And I just went all over on this journey with my friend Vivek Ball, who was a scholar. And he said, we've discovered gold because in academia, in American history, no one has told the story about that first wave of South Asians who came because they were undocumented. There were no records. And so we didn't land on Ellis Island. There were steamship workers who worked shoveling coal. And it was so oppressive that when they landed in London and New York, they were like, you know what? I'm out of here. You know, there's a party in New York I'm going to. So I don't never know for sure, but some of my uncles said that when they landed in New York, they felt like the Lower East Side was racist. But when they got to Harlem and they saw all those beautiful women and a free culture where you were free, they were like, this is amazing. And Harlem, for even African-Americans in the South, was a free space, safety space, because they were getting lynched and Jim Crow. So Harlem became almost like this safe space, not just for African-Americans, but for immigrants of color. 
So that my, my dad and my uncles, they were marrying African-Americans and Puerto Ricans. So this was a lost history where, you know, like, you know, people like Dinesh D'Souza and even now Vivek, I call him Vivek Rama Stupid, the one who's running for president. They sort of demonize African-Americans, not realizing that Harlem, Detroit, New Orleans, the African-Americans welcomed the South Asians into their community and really helped them get settled in America. So I thought this is a lost history. Why not do an entire project about it? So we did the book, which Vivek Ball researched excellently. Um, we just finished the film, In Search of Bengali Harlem. And this solo show really is about that story. So it's a lost history. No one's telling that story. You know, Hollywood doesn't really care about those images. So I'm trying to push the envelope to get these stories into the forefront. And I believe my big mouth, you know, 25 years ago made a dent because now there are positive images of people who are South Asian and especially Muslims. So, you know, I feel like it's hard work, but even this dopey comedian's mission was to just open the door and show <clears throat> that South Asians are human and that we're not one-dimensional and we're nuanced. And Muslims have a sense of humor and South Asians have a sense of humor unlike no one else. So that's, that's what I wanted to sort of reinvent myself doing. So I've been working more as a writer and a, and a director, but since COVID, I really miss performing. So I'm just falling in love with live performance all over again. Oh, I love that. And you've had an opportunity to kind of create all of that. I do want to touch upon the documentary real quick in search of Bengali Harlem. I did watch this. And for anybody who is listening or watching as a South Asian American woman, um, as a South, as you know, as a, as a child of immigrants, this story is so important. And I do hope that many of you will take the time to watch and have access to it because Alauddin, it, it really just touched my heart in so many different ways. And I think for you to go back and share the story of your father, I feel like that's a story for many of us because our parents came into this country. They were here to survive, you know, and they wanted us to thrive. And in doing that, we didn't get to build these solid relationships with them. Um, my father recently passed away and I, I there were so many questions I also had. And so your story brought that back to me. And there was something touching that I'm going to, I got it. I wrote it down here. You said in this doc uh, was we've been omitted from history. And I have to say, as a fellow South Asian, um, I'd heard a little bit about this, but I didn't know that there were even laws that banned South Asians at that time. And there was this whole community of Bengali Muslims that came in, started restaurants, started some of the first Indian restaurants. Right. And just even the yep. integration with the black and the Puerto Rican community. So. I think that your documentary is very, very important. Before I go on to my next question, is there anything you'd want to share about it as well? August Wilson, my favorite playwright, he says, um, can you move forward by denying your history? And so I feel it's a great question because, you know, in, um, I don't want to go off in my Department of Education rant. I, I've worked in high schools as a teacher. And, you know, as a teaching artist is one thing, but looking at the way that we teach history forms the way people are in America. And so we've totally betrayed the truth, which is why, you know, I think this whole critical race theory gets out of hand. It's a simple way of explaining it. If you don't explain the truth, you're not going to know what happened. 
And we've been underrepresented because they haven't told our true story. So in 1882, there was a Chinese Exclusion Act, which prohibited Chinese from coming to America. That is racist. Like, there's no debate about that. You don't have to be white, black, Republican. It's just racist. Like, I don't need a a legislation to tell me that that's racist. And I'm not going to stop saying it because it is racist. So the laws were exclusionary laws. So they like, okay, so we got these Chinese out. Then all of a sudden, from 1880 to 1920, there were all these South Asians who were jumping ship and coming in New York. So next thing you know, the white folks are like, where did all these brown people with straight hair come from? Are they African? They don't look Chinese. Where, what, what's going on? And of course, instead of showing humanity and compassion, what happens? They rear their ugly head and says, we don't like them. They look like freaks. Let's create a new law. And since they were smart enough to figure, oh, Indians, they come from Asia. Let's just ban everyone from Asia. So in 1917, there was the Asiatic Bard Zone. I'm not making this up. This is like, you know, academics just say, well, that's what happened. I give you a little editorial by saying, no, man, it's racist. So. Once again, why I love South Asians, and I never think of my father in this way, the South Asians were like, you can ban us all we want. (laughs) We know how to sneak in because we got the hookup. So (laughs) these men were like, you know what, man, we're going to go to New York and we're going to start our own community. We're going to come here with nothing, take lemons and make lemonade with some curry and turmeric and hold the on it. And we're going to like start this party up. Now, I never thought of my father in that way. To think that my father did something illegal is crazy. But I feel like my father and my uncles knew what they were doing. So when I found out about the Pakistan League of America, this is what really floored me. These dishwashers, these laborers who couldn't even speak and write, they were illiterate in their own language. They couldn't write letters in Bengali. They, they started this organization to help the community. And they, although it says Pakistan League of America, they welcomed Sikhs. They welcomed, it was, it was love. It was like whoever was there. So there's a picture in 1952 of this community of like African-Americans, Puerto Ricans, and the children are half, you know, Bengali or at that time, half Pakistani, half, you know, they're mixed. So I was like, how did this community rely on one another to get naturalized, to get jobs, to get houses. And here I am, if I don't have enough change for laundry, I'm having a mental breakdown. So like that story about resilience, I never thought of my parents that way. I just thought, well, you know, they, they did what they did. It made me realize that, you know, I didn't really appreciate their journey. And in my opinion, I think my generation, we have no clue the, 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 the BS. We've had it easy. We've had it easier than them. And I'm like, I would freak out if my mom didn't give me change to play video games. Ma, I want to play Asteroids. I mean, imagine their daily survival. And and, and there's so much. Like, honestly, I, I wish I could sit here and dissect this entire thing because it's more about humanity and feelings. And, and we look even at the deeper sacrifices that yeah. our immigrant parents made. I mean, they left their families and, and people they would never see again, especially for mothers. And they, 
held us together here. Anyways, I mean, there's so much to talk about. And that's why I really encourage people, you know, to look up the, the doc and just even to follow your story. The thing that I want to finish up on this point was that this entire project started because I wanted to know about my father. So when I went back to Bangladesh, I make the joke that I went looking for my father, but I ended up discovering my mom. And when I found out her backstory, I was in, I was like, wow. Like, you know, what women go through in third world countries and come to America and what they're leaving, you know, if I leave New York for three months, I'm like, I got to get back home. I couldn't even imagine leaving New York and saying, you know, I may never come back and I've got to go to a foreign place and just figure out what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. I never thought about my mom from that perspective. Because once again, I'm a comedian, I'm a goofball. It made me think, wow, I don't really know who my parents are, but I'm getting to learn about them by going back and doing all this research on them. So it just got a, a deeper appreciation. What I loved about the film festivals is that we were getting people from all over the country, Detroit, you know, Cleveland, Texas, you know, West Coast, Seattle, everyone was like, you were getting the elders going, yeah, this is my story. But then the younger generation was like, wow, I didn't think about it that way. Like, really? Like, wow. They came here and, you know, they were fleeing all of that poverty and oppression and colonialism to come to a country that also has racism, but they had to learn how to navigate it in a way that they have to survive for their children. And what's crazy is they were successful. And then they gave us the liberty and the freedom to pursue my dream. The only reason I'm a comedian is because of the dreams of some kid in a village who said, you know, I may be a dishwasher, but you know what? I'm going to get paid and become an entrepreneur and my children are going to have a better life. I never thought of my father in that way. I was like, you know, he doesn't understand hip hop. He doesn't know me. So I never looked at it from his perspective when my mom's perspective. Oh, yeah. And it, but I'm glad that you had the chance to go back and dig deeper and find out at least what their journey was. And you were able to share that part of the generation with all of us. I have just a couple of minutes left here. I, like I was telling you, I know I could talk to you for a full hour, if not more. There's so much there to unravel. Um, I'm going to end by asking you this question. In this current sociopolitical climate, storytelling is increasingly recognized as a powerful tool for social change. So how do you, with your experience, envision the future of storytelling, particularly in the context of highlighting the immigrant experience and other unrepresentative narratives that we often face? I think it's really important to look at it from the perspective or the philosophy is like, we don't have to ask for permission. And I think when I was younger, I was so busy chasing fame and wanting the approval of like Hollywood I realized that the artists that I loved, they weren't doing that. Satyajit Ray with the Apu trilogy, you know, uh, even Spike Lee, who's making in the 80s, he, they weren't making films about African-Americans with nuance the way Spike Lee was. And I feel like we have to find our true voices by just allowing us to be ourselves. Don't chase fame. And, you know, I know my manager won't mind. Don't chase the money. Chase your heart and chase your passion. Of course, you know, like when I mentor younger artists, I'm like, you know, have your day job, 
don't say I'm going to live like an artist and live off of the oats and the, you know, Cheetos and just, you know, be an artist. No, this, there's a discipline. You, you have to have, you know, your survival job. But when you're pursuing your art, what's the story that you want to tell, that you really want to tell, like that you don't want to pander? That's how you find your passion. And whether it's, you know, the artists that I love, like Public Enemy, Run DMC, Satyajit Ray, or, you know, August Wilson, you know, and once you find your voice, you know, just go 100% and don't half step, really embrace that because technology has changed the game. You can, you know, TikTok, you can tell a story in a minute. And sometimes the most profound stuff comes in these shorts. So I'm learning as an old man who's middle-aged, like embrace the technology. And I think that if we tell the truth, that word is a dangerous word these days. If, <laughs> yes. if you are, you know, as this guy who was a famous playwright, his name was Shakespeare. He said, to thy own self, be true. Just be true to yourself and be, and be open. And, you know, don't make the mistake that I did. Get some Q-tips. When your parents talk to you, Listen to them with an open mind. They may be a little crazy because they want so much from you. But, like, just take a chill pill and listen to what they're saying. And, you know, really, in many ways, the art comes from the root, and the root of the fruit is your parents. And so, like, their stories are the ones that need to be told. So I feel like my mission is to tell these stories about South Asians with compassion, dignity, and a sense of humor unlike any. That's why... I'm rocking the house every night at the Old Globe in San Diego, which is a very white community, but we're schooling them about what the real America is. And the real America is the immigrants that, you know, make this country a better place because we give, we give them something unique and something special. And I don't want to be a stereotype. I just want to be a prototype. Oh, I love that. Ooh, I might have to steal that line from you. Um, but I loved what you said about the passion and telling the truth, because I feel like when we do that, it naturally does open the doorways for us, you know, and it opens up those opportunities. And I do also want to commend you and just add to this conversation that within the South Asian diaspora too, there are, there are so many different communities. And I know something that else that hit me in your conversation too was growing up Muslim in this country. So having this opportunity in San Diego with a primarily white community to showcase not even just South Asian, but going in deeper into the Muslim community, uh, the Muslim community, I think is so, so incredible. So thank you. It's, it's Yes, did you want to add something? <laughs> I wanted to say that, you know, we, we tend to, in America, like you have to be too like, extreme, either the good Muslim or the terrorist. And my point is there are, there's a place for nuance and that's kind of like like piggybacking to what you're saying and like that's the key to being an artist don't be afraid to show the nuance so when i tell the audience that when i was a little kid and they served ham sandwiches the department of education didn't have an alternative now you have to have peanut butter and jelly or fish sandwich but you know i was getting teased and like oh you hungry you want this ham sandwich so i think audiences are laughing because they understand the pain of that little kid. You know, it is funny, but it's like, th these are the stories that, you know, we really need to tell about what it really is like authentically to be South Asian in a world that's not always wel welcoming us, but showing that resilience through humor and art in a way that's just organic and natural. I love that. Thank you. Thank you so much.
And I think, Ola, it's such a pleasure having you on our show. And again, Dishwasher Dreams, running in San Diego. Hopefully, we'll see you in LA soon with it. Um, had a, you know, you're having a very successful run. So thank you again. Where can people find you on social media? Um, on social media, I am, I haven't figured out because my actual name is A-L-A-U-D-I-N. But I think I'm on Instagram, it's A-L-A-D-D-I-N dot U-L-A-H. On Facebook, I'm A-L-A-U-D-I-N, U-L-L-A-H. Um, you can check out our website, uh, Bengali Harlem, B-E-N-G-A-L-I Harlem dot com. And I will be at Old Globe for another week. Uh, we're in San Diego in Balboa Park. There's no show in American theater like that. So I hope everyone can come check out the show. Yes, absolutely. Encouraging everyone. So make sure to check out his handles um, and the show. And thank you once again for joining us. And if you have any questions or suggestions for future guests or topics, we would love to hear from you. Don't forget to subscribe to your favorite podcast platform, as well as follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram, and X. Asian Pacific Voices Radio is produced by Asian Culture and Media Alliance, a nonprofit that empowers our API community with a voice through media arts. Now, if you'd like to support our program or learn more about us, please do visit us at AsianPacificVoicesRadio.com. Thank you once again for listening. I'm your host, Rasha Goel, and please do join us next week for another exciting and thought-provoking Asian Pacific Voices Radio. Until then, take care and have a fantastic week.